to class today. Let me just click on something here. My name is Juline Jackson. I'm here with Vivian Brown from San Antonio, Texas. Vivian is. I live in Chevy Chase, Maryland. We're with Moms for America, where the whole premise is liberty begins at home. When mama understands the principles and the stories and the miracles of America, her children will know. When mama learns things, it's the most natural thing in the world to want to go and teach your children and your grandchildren. And this is what we do, Mothers of America. We come together and we share experiences and we teach one another. And we're learning the things that are going to armor our kids up so when they go out into the world, they can discern truth from error. And there's a lot of error floating out there in the circles that our kids are, you know, navigating in the schools and the universities and social media and so forth. So anyways, welcome. Glad to have you. Before we begin our online cottage meeting, a cottage meeting is really just a group of women coming together to study and to learn. It's been said that 10 small discussion groups will do more in, the, in communities, will do more to create a new way of life than a hundred mass meetings where a thousand people are in attendance. Women coming together to learn each week changes their heart. And when mama's heart is changed, everyone in her sphere of influence heart is affected and impacted. Well, ladies, thank you so much for joining every Wednesday morning, 11 o'clock Eastern Standard Time for you to carve out in your busy summer day, an hour to be with us, hour and a half sometimes to be is, is a sacrifice that does not go unnoticed by me. And I definitely know by God, and hopefully your family. Uh, I'm coming from you from the beach, Bethany Beach, Delaware. This is our beach week. So all my kids have gathered except for one, our married daughter, her husband, some of our extended family member at Bethany Beach. And um, we're about 20 minutes from President Biden. And he has a beach house just up the street from where we are. And so I, I Googled, when was the last time President Biden was in, you know, his beach house? He purchased this house two years ago. I think it's close to a $3 million beach house that he purchased in 2019. And it's just a couple blocks from the beach. Rehoboth is a, a very well-known beach area. You know, President Biden is from Delaware. So we, we are in Delaware right now. I'm at Bethany Beach, Delaware. And he is just up the street. And, um, he, you know, he's always... He's President Biden has served his whole career has been a, a, in office in Congress, I think over what 44, 45, 46 years. And he always has liked to say he's middle class Joe, um, that he's was one of the least wealthiest senators in Congress. And, and he, I wouldn't say he's middle class anymore because he, he has some beautiful multi-million dollar homes. And I think when he left office as vice president, his net worth was nine million. And so he's got also another beautiful lakefront home here in Wilmington, Delaware, just a, an hour or two away from where we are now. It's interesting. This is just a little trivia, which I found interesting as I was uh, looking up when the last time President Biden was at his beach house, that today is President Obama's birthday. Did you know that? It's President Obama's 60th birthday. And President Obama is having a big 500 uh, member birthday party at Martha's Vineyard on Friday because they purchased a $12 million house after he uh, left office uh, in Massachusetts. Um, 
And so President Biden was invited to that birthday party, but President Biden declined because he's coming to the beach. So uh, I'm going to be looking for the motorcade because uh, President Biden said he's coming to his holiday house and probably he's a little aware too that it might not be a good look to um, go to a party where there's going to be 500 in attendance plus 200 people. So about 700 people <laughs> will be at President Obama's house in um, Martha's Vineyard, given the fact that back in Washington, D.C., where I live, I live about 15 minutes um, from the White House, all the mask mandates have come back if you're a federal government worker. And even in D.C., uh, we have to wear masks now when we are indoors, which is unfortunate. So anyway, it's just a little interesting side note today as I'm at the beach wondering if I'm going to run into the Bidens, you know, or something like that. Who knows? We shall see. It's really, it's not really not a, you know, Martha's Vineyard type of environment. It's, it's just kind of, you know, people from all walks of life at the beach. But I, I do know the area that he lives in. It is kind of a lovely area, that Rehoboth Beach area. Okay, on to way more important things than people's vacations and beaches. Although I am wearing my, do you see I have my shell? I, actually, I got this at the thrift store for a dollar before it came to the beach. But I'm like, let me wear my beach shell just to, you know, get in the spirit of, of um, <laughs> where I am. So one and all, we're on the 16-week Healing of America seminar. Each seminar goes for one month, and you have one workbook for each seminar. So we are on the third seminar, The Attacks of Our Charter of Freedom. And we are, each seminar has four sections. We are on section two. So we're on seminar three, section two. Girls, I really hope that you've been following along with these classes, with these workbooks. This is like what you will teach from. This is what you'll pull on your lap and teach your children, your grandchildren, uh, stories and facts and figures from. I have pulled this to church and taught out of it. I've taught out of it uh, in rallies I've spoken to. I pulled information from it when I testified before, you know, school boards. I mean, it, it, I just think there are your treasure trails of information and how you can formulate, you know, your thoughts based on principle and not on emotion or anger or fear. And so, you know, they're fill in the blanks. So you uh, typically when you go through a cottage meeting on your own with mamas in the house, you could just read two or three paragraphs and fill in the blanks together and have a discussion because I teach an online cottage meeting. It's kind of more of an overview. So you need to fill out, fill in the blanks uh, by yourself. And, you know, seminar three is chock full of information, like there's 16 pages we're going to cover today. And so I just kind of give you an overview. So I hope every day, just like you spend a little day in the Bible, a little bit of time each day in the Bible, I hope you'll spend a little bit of time studying these principles of liberty and freedom. And always after class, if you will go back and review these 16 pages that we're going to review today, it will help lock in and help you to retain what we discussed in class today. Okay, and remember, if you ever miss any classes, you can always go back online. All of our classes are recorded. Just go to momsforamerica.us, click on the summer series, and, and scroll down to view presentations. And so, okay, here we go. I hope you've got your pen. You're taking notes on the side. Here we go. Our assault on the moral fiber of America. Remember, 
just quickly, seminar one, we talked about God's dealing and hand in establishing America and those wonderful stories of the people that he used. So inspiring. God is a miracle back then. He definitely is still a, a, a God of miracles today. So don't lose courage or heart, mamas. Seminar two, we, we unpacked such a popular phrase nowadays. We unpacked the constitution. We figured it out. What are the seven articles? What are the 27 amendments? What did our founding fathers give us? What has come since our founders? And how has it weakened or strengthened uh, this country? And so we learn the constitution from the viewpoint of the founders and what has come since. And then we're this seminar three is the attacks on the charter of freedom, the attacks on our country. And last week, remember, we talked about the attacks on our education system. Why in the world are our children coming home from school sounding like many Marxists? <laughs> There's a reason because systematically godless reformers, we talked about, remember last week, Horace Mann, John Dewey, they were atheists. They wanted to take morality out of education. And now we're reaping some of the whirlwind of what they put into play in the early 1900s and mid 1900s. Today, we're going to talk about the assault on the moral fiber of America. Remember we talked about the, the hinge, the hinges, our door of the, the, that makes America great is kind of hanging on, um, is askew on its hinges. And, and our founders intended this hinge, this bolt of uh, morality to be like the foundational bolt, the strength of this Republic. And we're gonna talk about how this has been attacked in the, really the last century. So our wonderful George Washington said, of all the habits that lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. So by the early 1830s, our founding fathers' constitutional principles were really taking hold in America. It's been about 50 years since the Constitution was signed. And communities are now starting to operate under these principles and these standards of decency and morality that our founding fathers wanted each individual communities to, to determine their, their standards of um, safety and uh, integrity and morality and decency. And this whole notion of having many religions, multiple religions was really having an effect on the country. Religious beliefs were becoming an integral part of society. Remember in our wonderful 5,000 yearly book, which I want to teach a class on this in January next year, these 28 principles that really changed the world. The 21st principle said that our founders knew that strong local self-government was the keystone to preserving our human freedom. And so they wanted, you know, these standards of decency to be determined by the states and the, their own communities. And that would be done through religions and the, and the way that people would see fit to, to live moral and, and good and honest and morally strong lives. So we know, like we keep talking about this Northwest Ordinance that was passed the same year the Constitution was adopted in 1787. And this Northwest Ordinance was simply a set of standards that the new territories that were going to come into the Union had to adhere to. And in Article 3 of that Northwest Ordinance, it said that they wanted schools to be established and for children to be taught three things, morality, religion, 
and knowledge. All right, what an amazing thing to speak to a school board. Did you know that our founding fathers in the early history in 1787, the three things they wanted taught in our schools were morality, religion, and knowledge. And why is that? Because they knew that people would tend to behave according to what they be believed. And people believed what they were going to be taught in their homes and in their schools. And what, what would be taught in schools, our founders knew, would ultimately become the standards of society. Abraham Lincoln himself said, the curriculum in the classroom in one generation will become the philosophy of the government in the next. And so our founders knew in order to maintain this republic based on people's law, on natural law, on God's law, they had to be taught religion and morality, to look to God, to look to the Bible, to, you know, to study our inalienable God-given rights so we could maintain a balance based on the voice of the people. And as long as the people remained righteous and virtuous and good, they could maintain the government. And what helps you to re remain righteous, you know, and good and honest? Well, it's to be looking to God, to anchor yourself in his law. And so can you see why principle number four is uh, uh, it's government of free people cannot be maintained without religion. That's what our founder said. Read that principle in number four. It will armor you up with all kinds of great things that you can use when you go out and if you have to testify before a school board or make public comment or something like that. And so remember Alex de Tocqueville, he came over that French author who wrote Democracy in America. He came over to America in 1831 because he wanted to know why this little fledgling nation was doing so magnificent. You know, and so he came and he stayed for several years and he made observations and he said, there is no country in the world where the Christian religion retains a greater influence over the souls of man than in America. Now, he had just come from the, America, the French Revolution, where atheists for a time you know, took over their government. And it was so catastrophic, they gave all the power back to Napoleon. So he understood that, you know, this, this idea of, of um, you know, becoming a great nation wasn't necessarily based. And he, he said it himself to Tocqueville, when I looked for the greatness and genius of America, I looked in her commodious harbors or her fertile fields or her boundless prairies or the rich mines or the vast commerce. But he said, it wasn't until I went to the churches of America and I heard those pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and her power. And did Tocqueville notice that ministers taught the standards of morality and religious belief and, was, and, and it was infiltrating into every segment of society, especially in politics and education. And he said that the clergy kept their churches politically separate from the government. So there was no official church state, like remember the Church of England, the founders did not want an official federal church state. But they did, so there was a separation in church and state in as much as, as that was not the case, but there was not a separation of religion and state. The founders knew that religion would be in, an integral part of the government and, and um, morality in, in maintaining the laws that had been given to us in their constitution. 
And so remember how last week we talked about that first cycle of education where children were taught to read out of the Bible. I mean, and, and the McGuffey readers, those little stories teaching the, you know, Ten Commandments and the Golden Rule and, and scriptures woven in the primers that children were learning how to read in the schools. And um, remember I told you about those McGuffey primers and I didn't have them because I was, I don't know where I was last week. I was in Iowa or something. <laughs> and so here I am. Here are the McGuffey readers. Al said, my husband, he said, Jillian, are you really going to haul the McGuffey readers to the beach? And I'm like, yes, I want to show the mamas what these McGuffey readers look like. You can get these for $92. It's kind of expensive on Amazon. Sorry, Amazon. But I think some of the mamas said you can buy them at thrift stores like $4 a piece. So these are the little primers that these kids in the 1800s, all of them were learning how to read and spell. And I think I said they went up to high school. But really, they, they go from about kindergarten to eighth grade. But I pulled out like the, the, the very last primer. And I'm like, oh, yeah, my 18-year-old senior definitely needs to be reading this. And so I, I, you know how I always get little inspirations we all do about what we need to teach our children or our grandchildren. And I've had a little morning devotional. This is how I've taught my children in the morning. We study the Bible. We study it, the story from America. We study the constitution, the headlines. We sing a song, we pray. So I'm going to have my little 13 year old, she's soon to be 14, begin to read the McGuffey's in the morning over our little morning devotional. So she's eating her cereal while I'm giving her the morning devotional. But I'm going to try and incorporate her reading these because I started reading them and I thought, look, there's an example in our book. Uh, do you see it there uh, on the third reader? So it doesn't mean third grade. It's just there's four readers and some spelling books and some. Anyways, th these are great mamas and grandmas. You want to be reading your children and your grandchildren these books, not not Disney, you know, when you sit them down because um, it, it opens up a wonderful discussion. So look, for example, this little lesson here in the primer in the book, the power of no, when to say no. So imagine your little child is reading this. When you are tempted, number four, when you are tempted to use angry or wicked words, we should remember that the eye of God is always upon us and should say no. When we have done anything wrong and are tempted to conceal it by falsehood, we should say no, we cannot tell a lie. It is wicked and cowardly. Now imagine if your children and grandchildren were learning how to read by these little notions. And then there are stories woven in these little readers here. And so I just am like, uh, okay, these, cause they sit on my shelf, these McGuffey readers and they look so pretty, but I've never really gotten into them. I'm like, we are getting into them this next school year. We're going to study these McGuffey readers because more McGuffey readers were sold during the 1800s than any other book except the Bible and Webster's Dictionary. So as a result, by 1840, American children were growing up with a strong moral principle and spiritual strength and a patriotic love of uh, the liberty and the Constitution. However, also in the, uh, the later 1800s, these spiritual and patriotic philosophies were about to be challenged by a man in America named Horace Mann. He was going to introduce these humanist ideas. And we talked about what is secular humanism. Secular is irreligion, 
all right? And humanism is this idea, idea of being separated from the divine, where humans solve human problems, not God. And so Horace Mann was going to become a very well-known educational reformer. He was born in the mid-1850s. Luckily, he only lived till 64, so he died in the early 1900s. But he, he began to lay the seeds of this secular humanism in the schools where he began to teach, remember that religion should not be a part of everyday life, especially in the classroom, and that the authority and responsibility of education should be shifted from the parent to the state, and that children couldn't be responsible for their natural instincts and all kids should be looked on as innately good. And we know that goes contrary to what the Bible tells us, that man, all men are kind of an enemy to God. We're natural. We're born with these carnal instincts. And this is why we need God to overcome some of, you know, these, these um, natural man and woman instincts that we, we have. And that um, Horace Mann also taught with this notion of humanism, that mankind is to be measured um, that mankind was to be the measure of all things, not God. So whatever the popular consensus is at that time, that is, you know, how we're to dictate our standing in the universe. And that children were to be taught that there were no absolute values of right or wrong, and that one's decisions are based on the situation at the time. Hence, situational ethics were formed. And so, you know, this Horace Mann, he, he went on to become the father of public education. And over 100 schools in, uh, in America are named after him, bear his name. And so while he is getting his foothold, and then after him is going to come John Dewey in the early 1900s into the mid-1900s, and he just kind of uh, picks up where Horace Mann, you know, left but at the same time, uh, in, in the late 1800s, a man by the name of Karl, Mar Karl Marx begins to make some real headway. Now, Karl Marx was born in Germany in 1818, and he would live to 1883. He would die at 64, too. Thank goodness that they didn't live until their 90s although John Dewey did. But Karl Marx um, was one of these godless uh, educators as well. And, um, and what Karl Marx was going to get started ultimately was going to and is having a devastating impact in the United States and around the world. So Karl Marx uh, studied at the University of Berlin and he just became intoxicated with philosophy and he studied uh, an ancient Greek philosopher called Epicurus and he believed Karl Marx that there was no need for a creator since matter se seemed to create itself and he called his thesis in one word I hate all gods can you imagine that so he was a German socialist revolutionary, and he would go on to write the Communist Manifesto. He is known as the father of communism, and co communism really does enslave people. And nowhere where Marxist ideas have been practiced long-term has life gotten better for people under Marxism. There's not even a, an exception to this rule, I dare, I dare say. Have anyone tell me their life long-term is better under communism and Marxism. So he, Karl Marx was an atheist 
And, and um, he tried to infect German society with some of his revolutionary ideas. Now, when he was a young gunner, in a letter to his future wife, Jenny, poor Jenny, it'd be interesting to, you know, read her biography. I don't think she has one. But in, in, in a letter he wrote to Jenny before they were married, he said, Jenny, if we can just weld our souls together, then with contempt can I fling my glove in the world's face, and then shall I stride through the wreckage a creator. Now that should have been a red flag for Jenny that maybe something was a little off, but they did marry. He and Jenny had seven children, four died in childhood, two other children committed suicide and one died of cancer. And Karl Marx himself would die penniless in London in a one bedroom apartment in exile. So, you know, the fruits of this man's labors and life are not good, but he laid the seeds that other evil, um, godless men and women would, would you know, go take, uh, take these ideas and, and elaborate on. And, and um, Karl Marx had a cohort named Frederick Ingalls and Mr. Ingalls came from a wealthy family. And these two Marx and Ingalls rallied around them communists that wanted to destroy Christianity, uh, Christianity and um, Judeo-Christian values. And these two became the founders of modern communist thought. And they used every economic crisis to replace what they called industrial capitalism, the communism. And like I said, they published the Communist Manifesto, which was a anti-Christian, anti-constitutional treaties that really had a tremendous influence throughout parts of Europe and would later gain momentum here in America. And it's really chilling to read the, the 10 planks of the Communist Manifesto because so many of them, I mean, I'm, I almost would say almost all of them have come to pass here in the United States. Now, I'm going to recommend a wonderful book, Mamas, that you get called The Naked Communist. It came out in 1960. It was a bestseller back then, and it has found its way into libraries in the CIA, the FBI, the White House, and there's nothing out of date about this book here, as it shows how communist ideas have permeated almost into every aspect of this country. Now, Cecil DeMille, remember that great Hollywood um, director and producer, Cecil DeMille, he directed the Ten Commandments and Cleopatra and Samson and Delilah. Well, he was friends with Cleon Skousen, who wrote this book. And he said, let's name it The Naked Communist because the title it really is implying we're going to strip uh, communism of its propaganda or romanticism and pretense and just lay it out for you what it really is. And it's, it's chilling to see how Karl Marx and Engel have really been able to achieve their objectives and ideas all around the world. And so this is a book that my little cottage meeting that I started in Utah, we studied, I think it probably took us six months to get through this, we just maybe read a chapter or two and come together and discuss it. But um, I would get, it's only like $10. I think it's on our Moms for America store, or you can definitely buy it uh, through Kimber, kimbercurriculum.net or .org, where you can buy our, our manuals, um, either through our Moms for America store or the TJC. Um, maybe Viv, you can put some information on that. 
I know you can always buy these books on Amazon too, but you know, we don't like Amazon. So um, anyways, uh, Horace Mann, Karl Marx, John Dewey even, we're all trying to put into practice the philosophies of Plato. Do you know much about Plato, that Greek philosopher that lived, born, was born in 427 BC? He only lived 51 years, but dang, he's done a lot of, a lot of harm. He's motivated a lot of evil dudes. So um, Plato uh, was especially, his philosophies were, were, they tried to weave into the public school system at every level, but his philosophies, Plato's philosophy started out as uh, part of public policy uh, as students were trained in this philosophy to become leaders in their community. And they wanted um, people to believe in Plato's utopian uh, society. Is there really such thing? I don't think so, as long as we have freedom and liberty. But um, some of Plato's tenets that Marx was so fascinated by was to do away with the family and to raise children in, in public finance nurseries kind of thing, where maybe the state would, would have more influence. And to do away with traditional religion and, and adopt political religions. Political religions really are irreligion, don't you think? and to disallow the public to tell lies with the exception being the government. And right now, don't we feel that's the case? You know, with all this huge censorship and social media blackout and misinformation, but you know, whatever the government or those entities tell us that that is, don't ask questions, that is how it is to be. And um, compelling women to go along uh, to war with men, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Boy, what the ERA did in the 70s for that notion. And that you should be governed on your the whims of men, the popular trends or ideas or philosophies instead of the rule of law. Our rule of law is the Constitution. And um, also to demand, now these are all notions and ideas that, you know, Marxism and Horace Mann and Dewey pulled from Plato. And Plato also, you know, wanted complete dictor dictatorial, dictatorial control over the people. So Plato himself, there's a quote here in our workbook, Plato himself says, nobody, whether male or female, should be without a leader, nor should the mind of anybody be ha habit habituated to letting him do anything at all on his own initiative. Woo! So, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that so many Americans don't remember our founding fathers rejecting all of Plato's ideas, his atheistic and totalitarian philosophies. In fact, several of our founders have, have written about Plato and have done an in-depth study of Plato and recorded their findings. Thomas Jefferson recalled Plato's ideas as utter nonsense. And John Adams actually wrote to Jefferson uh, telling him how he had done an in-depth study of Plato. And he said, it was a severe task. I labored. It was a tedious toil. My disappointment was great. My astonishment was greater. My disgust was shocking in Plato's book, The Laws in His Republic, uh, from which I expected most, dis disappointed me most. So that's what our founders 
you know, felt about Plato. So our founders studied these early ancient thinkers of Montesquieu and Cicero and John Locke, and they all talked about, you know, the wisdom of Republic and the Republic form of government. And even Plato, you know, wrote this book about uh, his laws and his Republic. But Plato believed in a, an elite ruling class uh, and this ruling class making plans and telling people how to believe. And we kind of feel like we see that today with this elitism uh, reigning uh, in um, America. So, you know, as, as these ideas are starting to take a foothold around the world, it, in 1864, it's almost like Congress knew, you know, that there were these tremorings and whisperings of this anti-God uh, theory. And so they tried to clarify more closely the original founders' beliefs by um, putting on our coins in the mid-1800s, in God we trust. And they said um, that this was an appropriate motto for a Christian nation. And in God we trust is actually a phrase that came from the Star Spangled Star Spangled Banner, which was written in 1814 by um, Francis Scott Key. And um, remember uh, that that word is in the national anthem and this be our motto in God is our trust. And so I just want to give you a recommendation. And I know Vivian has said this is always one of her favorite hot picks that there is, um, has anyone been to that Fort McHenry where that 25 hour bombardment uh, took place during the war of 1812 and Francis um, Scott Key was held as a prisoner offshore in a British boat. And he, he couldn't, you know, see the damage that was happening in the Baltimore Harbor at that Fort McHenry, but he prayed through the night. And when, you know, the dust settled the next morning, there was that American flag tattered and beat up, but it was still standing and waving. And that really is what turned the war and we won that war. So there's a wonderful uh, 11, 12 minute YouTube video that, that tells the story behind the Star Spangled Banner and in God we trust when that great national anthem was spawned from that experience of um, Key in that Baltimore Harbor. And um, it's I've, I've shown my kids this 12 minute um, video for years in our little morning devotional and it's just all i'm telling you just get weepy eyed because when you know this the stories of bravery and patriotism uh, that that transpired in our early history and why we have these little phrases and statements you know it it makes you more proud and it makes you want to respect you know what came before us respect our flag more and so anyways i really recommend watching that little video with your children Okay, so we've got John Dewey in the 1900s. So, so Horace Mann dies, John Dewey comes along. He's known as the father of modern education and he really begins to change the education system and, and um, attacks religion by pulling religion out of the schools. So John Dewey definitely believed uh, along with Horace Mann in this messianic character of education, that state was the true church. And he organized his ideas and man's ideas into an educational delivery system, which he published in this book called Democracy and Education. And he called this um, new form of education, progressive education. 
Now, John Dewey would team up with another fellow by the name of James Earl in 1904, and they worked together at Columbia University in New York City, and they built the Teachers College at the uh, uni at Columbia University. And today, that uh, um, school for teachers, the college, uh, at the Teachers College at Columbia University, is the oldest and the largest graduate school of education. And when you know, John Dewey was teaching these humanist ideas. It said by 1953, one third of all the presidents and deans of teachers training schools in America were graduates of this Columbia's Teachers College. And John Dewey, if you, if you look up, uh, up the Teachers College at Columbia University, he comes up as the very first notable alumni and formal faculty. So they really, uh, you know, hold him up and herald him uh, at, at this school. And he built, he built this entire program on humanism. He was the president, John Dewey was the president of the American Humanist Association in his lifetime. And here he says <laughs> this most horrible quote in our manual, I believe in no God and no hereafter. It is immoral to indoctrinate children with such beliefs. Schools have no right to do so, nor indeed have parents. I believe that religious education and prayers in schools should be eliminated. I believe that children should be taught religion as a matter of historical interest, but they should also be taught about other religions, including humanism, Marxism, Maoism, communism. Isn't that interesting that he <laughs> considered those religions? We definitely know Ben Franklin would have considered those religions unsound religions. Remember in principle four in the 5,000 year leap, uh, Benjamin Franklin gives the tenets of what they deem sound religion. And it's, it's complete opposite of what, you know, uh, John Dewey's espousing here. I believe there's no such thing as sin to be forgiven and no life beyond the grave, but death everlasting. And this man would be gone, would go on to become known as the father of modern education. It's kind of it's kind of terrifying. And it says here in our manual, uh, his statement regarding religion was a shocking uh, declaration to a lot of people in America at the time. And the philosophies of man and uh, uh, the system that was being proposed by John Dewey was resisted by a lot of Americans at first. But in the early 1900s, we began to have a monumental transformation that is going to begin to happen in America that would distract many of its citizens away from traditional education and God's, you know, the God-centered foundation that had, been, had existed the first hundred years in America. And what began to happen? Well, we had World War I, first of all. Uh, under Woodrow Wilson, I always have to shake my head when I say that name because under Will, Will, uh, Woodrow Wilson, we got the 16th Amendment, the 17th Amendment, the Federal Reserve. We were eight years uh, in the World War One, and then after the war, kind of ushered in that time period of the Roaring Twenties, and really for the first time, many Americans were enjoying in a long time some prosperity. You know, and so this is when the attacks against the moral fiber really began to heat up in our country. There was a man, does this name sound familiar? Vladimir Lenin. Uh, he was a communist and atheist dictator in Russia. 
And he lived from 1870 to 1924. And he was a Marxist revolutionary. Imagine that. And Mr. Lenin, feeling threatened by America and all the success that we were having during this time period, he hired three men. Two were prominent scholars and one was an obscure artist at that time to help put together a scheme directed at the religious beliefs of America because he knew, they knew that that was some of our power and our strength was our faith in God. And so he knew uh, that it was through music and art that Americans often expressed their religious and sacred beliefs. And so an attack on these two forms expressions were going to be the tool that he was going to try to use to weaken America through our religious, through our art and our music, okay? And so what he did, Lenin, is he employed a man by the name of Ivan Pavlov. Have you heard of Pavlov? Remember that the, he came up with the whole notion that when you ring a bell, uh, right before you feed the doggy, uh, the doggy then begins to associate any little bell with, you know, eating time and he starts to salivate. And so Pavlov uh, studied this conditioned reflex and how it could be a major force in controlling the mind and, and even a major force in mind controlling music. And then so, so what um, Lenin did is then he hired a Russian neuropsychologist by the name of A.R. Luria, and he was given the assignment of putting the research of Pavlov in to use against children. And, and um, Luria wrote a book entitled The Nature of Human Conflict and subtitled it An Objective Study of Disorganization and Control of Human Behavior. Now that doesn't sound like a good, a good title. And he described his findings in great detail, how the nerve jamming of children could, um, could be uh, had especially younger children and retarding them mentally and even animalizing them uh, through music. And hence, you know, we see a few decades later, we see this coarseness that is going to begin to take place with music, heavy metal, punk, rock music. I've had some mamas say, hey, Julian, I like rock music. But I think you can see how our music has gotten uglier and more distorted and sorted. And, and you know, you think of the beautiful classics and, and some of the popular rap that we have today, you know, I'm not so sure we've advanced with our music and it hasn't had, you know, it's had a negative impact on, on our mental well-being, certainly amongst youth and children. So, so he hired these two men to begin to experiment on music. And then he hired uh, Lennon did an obscure artist by the name of Pablo Picasso. Not obscure anymore, but back then he was. He was a Spanish painter, but he would spend most of his career in France. And he was to create art. Lennon wanted him to create art that would destroy faith. Isn't that interesting? And to promote the class struggle. So he introduced the term modern art and he sought to turn the mind from what was good and true and beautiful to kind of ugly and distorted and kind of radicalized art, modern art. And Picasso himself declared, uh, he said, I'm a communist and my painting is communist painting. Isn't that interesting? Did you know that about Picasso? 
So I want to tell you an interesting story about nine years ago, my husband, Al, is a businessman, but he's involved with the Thomas Jefferson Center for Constitutional Studies and has taught these uh, presentations and lessons around the country. So somehow uh, a school in San Francisco, the Academy of Art, it's the largest private, privately owned art school in America. They heard of what he taught and they reached out to him and they brought, they flew me and Al out to San Francisco about nine years ago. And um, it, it was a private art school. The grandfather had started it in 1929 and the father was now running it. And his daughter, Elise, was getting ready to take over. And she currently runs this art academy, the largest art academy, about 11,000 students in San Francisco study there. So they flew us out and they, they gave us a tour of the campus right in the heart of uh, San Francisco. It was amazing. And then the next day we went out to their very beautiful home beautiful, beautiful home. And this is what they said. And I will never forget because Al and I are still wondering, what are we doing here? They want Al to teach history to their students in San Francisco. <laughs> we just thought it was a little bit of a stretch. And they said that they had noticed in the past years that their art that their students were producing in their schools had gotten darker. It was less imaginative and less inspiring and they believed, I never forgot them saying, that they felt that these students had not been taught about America and the beauty associated with our history. And it was being reflected in this darker art that they were seeing these young kids produce. And so it's interesting they, they did not hire my husband. I mean, we never, I, I, you know, they didn't they didn't follow through with what they wanted. And I think as they began to really realize what he was going to teach them, it was too risky and it was too controversial to introduce this kind of curriculum into a very liberal, fluid, open, progressive, you know, school in San Francisco. And they, they, they couldn't do it, but they realized there was a problem with the art that they were seeing. And this was nine years ago. So as I sat on the beach with all my kids, oh, I've got 20, 27, 20, 27, 26, 23, 21, 18. The other day we were talking about art and I told them this story and they said, mom, the movies nowadays that are coming out are garbage. They said, it's just, it's like no one is original. It's just a bunch of remakes. And they said, you know, we haven't seen any good movies lately. Boss Baby 2, Space Jam 2, Fast and Furious 9. And they were all saying there's been no good movies. The Escape Room, uh, The Black Widow. And so I think we're seeing, we're seeing the effects of what, you know, this breakdown of, of beautiful art and music that started in, you know, the early 1900s. We're seeing it bear fruit today, you know. And um, so if you have any good recommendations of good movies, put them in the chats. And so the effects that we see of Pablo and Picasso and Luria, the effects that it has had on our culture, it wasn't immediate. But, you know, we began to see in full force starting in about the 1960s. And even today, we can say that about the music. I mean, goodness sakes, the spring during the Grammy Awards when, you know, that most popular Cardi B, uh, her song that she played nationwide on the Grammys, it was live, uncensored, no warning to parents. It was just 
really vile and pornographic. And here she's the most popular female rapper today. It's, it's frightening what has happened to our music and art. And it was done by design and it started with Lennon because he wanted to attack where we were our strongest. And that was through our faith. And we exhibited our faith for, through a beautiful art and music. And so that's what he attacked and look what we have today. So we see it now, it's going into the 1940s and 50s. Those were called experimental years. We know we talked about this last week, World War II was on and just the sheer numbers of those that had to be involved in that war. Daddies went off to war and mommies came out of homes and worked in factories. And the war uh, really had a twofold impact on the United States. First of all, it did increase the spirit of patriotism. All those that had served you know, in that war, lived through the depression that served in that war, they would become known as the greatest generation of, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, citizens. But also at the, t at the same time, because our attention was turned towards World War II, there was this diversion and those that were attempting to impose atheism, socialism, and humanism into our schools, they were making greater inroads as well. And during the 1950s and 60s, we see all these court cases now beginning to pull um, prayer out of school and religion out of school and no religion could be taught, no Bible reading, no the Lord's prayer. And it's interesting that, you know, right before these court cases began to happen um, in 1954, is there was an act, an act in Congress that they now included the words under God in the Pledge of Allegiance in 1954. Did you know until, until 1954, we didn't say uh, one nation under God in, in the pledge? And it's also when we added the phrase in God, we trust on our currency. In God we trust on all U.S. currency. And then in 1956, uh, we added in God is our trust. That became our national motto. So I always tell my kids, you know, when Satan ramps up the war, it's God ramps up as well. And so, you know, there was this conflict, you, you know, of trying to institute or remind our rising generations, look, in God we trust. That is our motto, you know. And uh, under one nation under God is who we are. And, and yet all these attacks on God and religion were taking place around that time as well. And also in the late 1950s and 60s was that 10 year period right after World War II, uh, what would become known as the Cold War. And the Soviet Union very much was now our enemy and with, and, and with their atheistic and communistic leaders making threats to America, uh, you know, about developing atomic bombs and that kind of thing. And, and these communistic leaders spreading their intentions to spread, you know, their form of government worldwide. And so, you know, there was a lot of fear uh, about, uh, about these influences. And so imagine when we talked about last week in 1957, when the Russians beat us into space, they had the first satellite, uh, space satellite called the Sputnik, what, what that clamor was in America. Oh no, we're falling behind. The Russians are getting ahead of us. We need, we, we, we need better education. We need more science. We need more math. We need more advanced curriculum. And so we allowed 
the federal government to take a more expansive role into our uh, education because we thought we were falling behind, you know, the, the Russians. But it's, it says here in our manual, recent research has uncovered the fact that the Soviet Union was actually aided in the launch of Sputnik by some of the United States who wanted to create a climate for change. You know, they wanted to make us feel like we were getting ahead following that Sputnik launch. So, so social scientists, as they call themselves, began to emerge into our educational systems and claim that they had the answer for these modern threats. Whereas it was actually some of our science that was behind the launching of that Sputnik. So it could start kind of a, a you know, a wave of, okay, yes, a government get more involved because we're obviously we're not you know cutting mustard here we're falling behind and so um they use this world situation as an excuse now to make that bold move as removing constitutional studies and traditional history from the classroom so they can make way for these new advanced curriculums and uh, they said look we've, we've progressed far enough in our history though it's not really necessary to have civics or history, and we'll just study, uh, we'll call it social studies now. And, and maybe, you know, I don't think I had more than a year of social studies as I think back uh, in, in some of the classes that I took. And it, it notes here that oftentimes our social studies teachers were our gym teachers. Did, did you ever have gym teachers as your, as your social study teachers? because it would require uh, just a limited amount of time and preparation, the, you know, the gym teachers in between their games uh, to teach uh, social studies. And so, you know, up until this point, you know, up until the 1960s, the United States had been leading the world in education. But what happened is we began to pull God and founding fathers and constitution and allow the government to dictate what, what they teach we have had a steady uh, decline uh, amongst um, industrial countries. And there's some graphs there. And if you were to do any kind of Google searches as well, we are not at the top anymore. So since Sputnik, we have actually gone down in our scoring and, and the way you know our kids uh, are doing educationally according to uh, you know, other nations first world nations. And so we talked about last week also those turbulent 60s where we had the integrations of schools and mamas, moms going out to the workforce and nutrition and TV dinners, you know, nutrition going down, TV dinners going up, and latchkey kids and uh, civil war strife and the Viet, Viet, uh, civil rights strife and the Vietnam War and kids growing up into this new kind of TV dominated world. And the 1960s also brought along kind of the progressive education and, uh, and uh, from it, these phrases that flowed from this progressive education of child's rights and free speech and do your own thing and your fair share and new math and police actions. And we also see more exotic grooming with dress styles as being the in thing and, and deviant sexual practices were explained as acceptable alternative lifestyles and secular humanism was kind of like the new hope and the illegal drugs became real prevalent. And if parents, you know, showed dismay or disdain, it was just kind of shrugged off by the rising generation as a, as a generation gap 
you know, that what our parents believed was kind of obsolete and too restrictive to a child's development. So um, anyways, and, and so also in 1962 and 63 is, is when we see, you know, even little prescribed prayers as, as the Lord's prayers was uh, considered an establishment of religion by the courts. And so in 1963, um, all prayer, uh, anything religious was completely pulled out of the schools. And it appears for all intents and purposes that the designs that our founding fathers had to teach these fundamental principles of religion and morality was all but dead by, you know, the mid 1960s. I think it's so interesting. A few months ago, there was a school teacher in Washington, a football coach, and he would pray at the 50 yard line after the games for any kids that wanted to kneel and pray. And he was fired for that. So he went to court and um, he lost, it went up to the appellate court and he lost uh, that case because the, the appellate court said that a student might feel pressured um, because you're establishing religion because you're praying <laughs> at the 50 yard line. And that's so contrary to what our founders intended. It's interesting in Congress today, US Congress, when it's in session, they open every day with a prayer, but a praying in school is too harmful to our children. But yet our you know, congressional leaders understand the blessing and beauty and value of prayer. Even if that, remember uh, Congressman Cleaver from um, Missouri, Missouri opened up this last session, January 3rd, and it, it got a lot of attention because he ended his prayer, amen and a woman. <laughs> so even if their prayers are, uh, you know, a little off or a little funky, at least they're praying, but they're not allowing our children to pray anymore. And we are seeing the fruits, we'll talk about it in a minute, of, you know, kids that, you know, if they're not being taught it in the home, they're not you know, being taught it at school, what, what is happening to our kids today to, to grow up, growing up being godless and not having the spirit to help them in school. Imagine if they were going to have a big test and, you know, they had a little prayer at the beginning of the day and they believed in prayer. They had faith and trusted that God would help them. They just do better in school. And uh, we're not doing that anymore. And, and obviously we're not doing so well in our, in our uh, schools anymore in our testing. So in, by the 1970s, we're seeing this widening gap here of, of what our founders intended and what, we're, what we actually have in the school systems. It's as if George Orwell's terrifying public novel, uh, uh, what was it called, 1984, was becoming a reality. In 1949, he wrote this best-selling book and he described this totalitarian society of the future that punished love and destroyed privacy and distorted the truth where government had absolute control. And I'm like, oh my land, some, some of this stuff you can't make up because it's like we're living it. We are living it. So um, uh, anyways, one of the writers of the Humanist magazine, um, who is I wrote this? John Dunphy. He said the classroom must and will become an arena of conflict between the old and the new, the rotting corpse of Christianity together with its adjacent evils and misery and the new faith of humanism. Okay. 
And there's an interesting quote here uh, about um, a Harvard professor, Dr. Pierce, that he gave to 200 teachers in Denver, Colorado in 1973. And he said, every child in America entering school at the age of five is mentally ill because he comes to school with certain allegiances towards our founding fathers, our elected officials, towards his parents, towards a belief in the supernatural being. And it makes uh, all of these six, these are sick children. And um, uh, it's up to you teachers to make all these six, sick children well by creating an international child of the future. So this is, these are all uh, people, uh, teachers that ascribe to this humanistic uh, theory and, and philosophy. Um, and so also at the same year, remember Gloria Steinem, uh, that famous feminist, she was the editor of Ms. Magazine in the seventies and of the headed, headed up the women's liberation movement. And she actually said in 1973 here in a magazine, by the year 2000, we hope, I hope that we can raise our children to believe in the human potential, not God. And she said, for the sake of those who wish to live in equal partnerships, we have to abolish and reform the institution of marriage, echoing the humanistic promotion of divorce. And from that, we got no fault divorce that is really uh, stems from feminism and that has really led to a six increase fold of divorces. And uh, the woman <laughs> never comes out on the good end when it's a no fault divorce. And, um, and so anyways, some of that spawned from that feminist movement. Hey, can I just recommend a really interesting 10 episode series called Miss America? It's on Hulu. So if you subscribe to Hulu, it's called Miss America. And it, it tells the story of the ERA, the fight between the Eagle Forum, Phyllis Schlafly, who is so conservative and such a, you know, a God-fearing mother. And, uh, and Gloria Steinem, and it's fascinating. Kate Blanchett plays the role of Phyllis Schlafly. She does such a good job. And, you know, you'll get a little angry as you watch it, but I think it's really good to help you understand how the ERA got such a foothold, you know, and back then it was so radical and, you know, kind of wild and mothers were, you know, shocked. And so they, they gathered together. But now, I, I mean, once again, they've achieved all their, platforms that they wanted to, you know, in 2021, this feminist movement. So anyways, by uh, 1980, we see a continuing slide. Uh, Dr. John Goodlad from the uh, NEA, the National Education Association, he, go, he said, our goal, he was a humanist also. And also it's interesting to know in 1980, the Department of Education was founded in Washington, DC. I mean, so much for strong local self-control and our you know, uh, local community board setting the standards and curriculum, uh, what our founders intended, Principle 21. Now we have a Department of Education pulling the strings. And, and this man, John Goodled from the NEA said, our goal is behavioral change. The majority of our youth still hold to the values of their parents. And if we do not re-socialize them to accept change, our society may decay. Uh, Reverend Seals from uh, Virginia quoted John Dewey as saying, 
John Dewey said, if the public schools can keep children occupied from 7 or 7.30 in the morning and throughout the day with sports and after school activities and homework in the evening, the parents will have less than an hour with their children and the family and Christian church's influence over them could be broken in about a generation. So we talked about this last week as we've seen the school days so long in public school, especially in high school. They knew that the way they could control students, if they could lessen the impact of mother, mother and father, but mother, and also pull God out of school. You know, when you read the history of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and how they talk about their mother and the influence of their mother, I don't know if you've gotten those books, the real George Washington, the real Thomas Jefferson, but I love the sections where they talk about their mama. George Washington's mother, Mary Ball Washington, was demanding. He says she was a strong-willed woman, and we were often at odds with each other, he said, but he affectionately called his mama Reverend Mother whose hand led him from childhood. George Washington's daddy died at 11 and at 14, because George Washington was large in stature, he wanted to go off to sea and be a midshipman like his stepbrother. He wanted to join the Royal um, Navy in England and she objected fiercely. And he said, my bags were packed, I was going. But he didn't go because of her and her earnest solicitations, he said, her earnest solicitations. I think as mothers, we've all had a few earnest solicitations in the form of raising our voice, weeping, wailing, crying, you know, whatever it took. And uh, so that's the kind of influence his mother had on him. And what, uh, how, you know, our nation's history might have been different if it hadn't been for this influential mother, inspired mother. And Thomas Jefferson says the same thing about his mother. She raised 10 children, uh, Thomas Jefferson's father, both of the, um, Washington and Jefferson's father died at 49. So these young boys, I think um, Jefferson was 14 when his father died. And he says, my mother, Jane Randolph, was a woman of clear and strong understanding who raised and bore those 10 children within a 15 year period. And so, you know, these humanists, these secular humanists, these educational reformers had to break that bond between a mother and her child. And they did that by breaking up the schools, no longer, you know, having all the kids educated in the little one room uh, classroom. So all the brothers and sisters could kind of keep an eye on each other. They isolated and split up the kids. And now peer pressure became more influential than, you know, the, the family bonds. And then they just kept them away from their parents. Hitler did that too with all of his youth programs during that time period as well. And so it, it might cause you to think about the way you the kids you know, are educated and the time that you do have with them is becoming shorter and shorter as they get older uh, into their teen years. And it was that was done by design. So now we have the 1990s, it's called Out of the Closet. By the 1990s, the majority of community leaders today were graduates of that American educational system that was really devoid of traditional and moral training. I mean, moms, that's us. I graduated in uh, 1987. I graduated from college in 1982. And, And most, it says most of them, you know, maintained who graduated during this time period, they still maintained a love 
of America, but we had little knowledge pertaining to the founding fathers in the constitution. I mean, that's me completely. I can't even tell you what I learned about the constitution in high school. And we also lacked, and I say we, because I'm talking about me, lacked an understanding of the moral society that our founding fathers advocated. Now, honestly, I got to think that what I knew about the founding fathers as a teenager was that Thomas Jefferson was a sexual, morally deviant man. He had children with his slaves and Benjamin Franklin. I think I'd seen some movies with him getting in out of tubs with women when he was over in Europe and Oh yeah, George Washington, he was racist. He had slaves, he was mean. I mean, uh, those are my impressions, you know, because we weren't taught these stories of our founding fathers. We were products, we are products of this godless, you know, education and pulling our founding fathers and true American history out. And this lack of knowledge left the communities vulnerable to programs that were directly, would have been directly opposed by our founding fathers. So many of those now have adopted lifestyles that they were in the closet, they are now out of the closet, and they are declaring today, we're seeing students and teachers declaring that they have constitutional rights to live any kind of lifestyle of their choosing, and that they're actually protected by the First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and that they should be allowed to practice any kind of uh, lifestyle that they want. Uh, whether the people in society want it or not. Lawmakers, teachers are taught, well, yeah, we can't legislate morality, even though that's the very thing that our founders knew would keep, would allow us to keep this republic, was religion, morality, knowledge, looking to God. And it's so interesting. I have a 21-year-old daughter now. She's a senior. She lives in a major city. And she said, um, major. Well, it feels like a major city to me. <laughs> it feels like one to her too, uh, Salt Lake City. And she said, mom, she, lo- she loves to um, skate through their central park. It's called Liberty Park in downtown Salt Lake. And she has these rollerblades. And she said, she said, I can tell all the guys my age that are rollerblading, their genders are very fluid now. The status is very fluid in college. And, and she, you know, just a few years ago had to we had this discussion, all college kids and maybe kids, your grandkids, your children, they're starting school. They have to come to terms with their pronouns because they're expected. I mean, that was shocking three years ago when she was a freshman. Now it's the norm. I have a little niece that's starting college uh, in a month. And she had this discussion about her pronouns, you know, and this is just becoming the norm. And so I just thought it was interesting. My daughter said, you can tell a lot of kids my age, their gender is very fluid because these seeds have been put into their mind. But what are you? It can be fluid. You can feel this way. You could, your sexual orientation could be this, but you can swing this way or it's all good, you know? And so um, we're seeing the products of confusion and teachers have been taught in these uh, school systems that subtlety is the key. Blatant radical change only invites negative reaction of Christian parents. So through the the last few decades, I'd say they've been very subtle about the way they introduce ideas and stories, uh, uh, you know, about sexual orientation. And I'm not even talking to LGBT community, but 
just the race baiting and the BLM and the evilness of capitalism, the deviancy of our founding fathers. And of course, it's normal that the government should come in and take over. And of course, guns are bad. You know, look at all these mass shootings. So it's, they've just been subtle the way that they have um, introduced these ideas. And as I was talking to the kids, you know, when you're on the beach eight hours a day, you talk. And they said, mom, at that Disney Prime, Disney Plus, uh, station said every single show has uh, a same-sex couples or gay parents. I mean, it's just, it's just such the norm, you know? So this is the world. This is what we're up against mamas and grandmothers. Now, you know, there are many good people in America who are not happy with the standards that have been endorsed and accepted throughout, uh, you know, America but they just don't know what to do about it. And maybe that's how you felt eight weeks ago or 10 weeks ago when you came to our Healing of America uh, seminar. I'm like, we're going to heck in a handbag. What, what could I possibly do about it? I always tell mamas during this seminar three, hang on because seminar four is all about solutions, how we can heal ourselves, our families, our schools, our communities, our faiths, our churches. But, you know, you can see how these these secular humanist philosophies have infiltrated and what we're seeing today, you know, that these social scientists said that we can't teach any kind of moral values because Christian values are offensive. We can't offend anyone. It might offend the Jewish student or Jewish teachings could offend the Buddhist or the Islamic. So God-centered teachings uh, certainly are going to offend atheists. So in our effort to please everyone by not teaching religion and morality to none, we are bearing some really shocking fruits. And all you have to see is the standards of education have gone down. We see more children smoking, drinking, sexually active, uh, rapes, suicides, dropout rates. They've all gone up since we pulled God through the decades out of the schools. And not only these kind of things, but just the mental anguish and depression and anxiety that we're seeing the mental instability with children boy we're seeing that through COVID we're masking them up we're making them afraid uh, just you know a couple months ago remember when that young boy 21 year old boy in Georgia went into the massage parlor and shot eight people six of them were Asians and the media wanted to call it a, a racial incident but because this young kid didn't uh, uh, resist arrest he lived to refute that, look, this, this had nothing to do with race. He said, I am, I am deeply addicted to sex and porn. And some of the things that he was doing when he went to those places, he knew was destroying his life. This kid had a Christian background. So he felt terrible about this, this sex and porn addiction that he had. No one wanted to talk about that industry as being the means for destroying this kid's life. Uh, you know, they wanted to call it a racial incident. And even I think it was almost a week later, that 21 year old boy this spring uh, in Boulder, Colorado, went to the supermarket and shot up 10 people. And because he had a, a Muslim sounding name, they called it, you know, a, a race incident and, you know, this big cry for gun control. And it come to find out he was he was mentally ill, you know, and, and so how the media will spin these things. But really, you know, these young people were, were taught how to go to God and how to pray and how to work through their trials and their struggles and challenges that, you know, if they, if they were 
praying in the school systems, they might not revert to some hopeless measures uh, like that when, when they come across hard things and they don't know what to do, um, um, you know. So mamas, I know this seminar is heavy stuff. I mean, this, this definitely makes me want to go get some um, soft serve ice cream and French fries and just sit on the beach and just think about, you know, the state of, a, of affairs. I really do believe, though, the greatest threat to America and to most Americans is that we just don't know. These young kids just don't know what made America great. And so I commend you because you are here. You want to study. You want to learn. You want to figure it out. You want to educate yourselves in these cottage meetings so that we can go and change, help change the hearts and the minds and to save this next generation who are a product of this godless very irreligious secular education uh, and and they're being they're you know we're, we're sending the kids back to school in a, a month or two and some of them are going to have to be masked up again and uh, critical race theory is being taught to them so they're being taught they're either a victim or they're an, they're either the oppressor or they are oppressed and so i i'm thinking this is not going to serve our children well and so, you know, unless we really understand the nature of these problems and how we wandered from what our founders gave us, the first beautiful hundred years, that first cycle of education, we can't really understand and appreciate the task of healing and putting these solutions into play. Uh, you know, I just want you to know, I, I've, I was there 13 years ago when I um, started going to this little cottage meeting in Hood River, Oregon, when we mamas got together and we started to study these principles and go home and teach them to our children. And I've seen how I've constantly tried to learn and teach and teach my children these these principles of liberty and freedom, what our founders intended. I've seen how it's changed me, how it's changed my marriage, it's changed my children. And this is what will happen with you in your little circle of influence with your children and your grandchildren. If I could tell you those mamas who still meet every Wednesday, 9.30 to 11.30, what they've gone on to do. I mean, they, they gather and they study each week. But then, you know, as you, as you get information into your, into your heart and your mind, God pricks you and opportunities open and you do things that you never thought you could do. And mostly, mamas, as we continue to look to God for our freedoms, for deliverance, for solutions, and not the government. And as we keep our little families close, and as we, you know, when we have the opportunity, we teach them these things. We have these little devotionals. It's so wonderful. All my kids are, are home uh, this week at the beach. And so we are having our little morning devotional like I I did for many years in my family. It's wonderful to have adult children and they just know this is just what they do. And we have them teach little parts, you know, they pull things out of the Bible and, and dad taught, we had home church on Sunday cause we were at the beach. And so dad had us all open to Isaiah 51. It talks about you come from the, your, the rock from which you were hewn, meaning remember your roots and then he took us to Isaiah chapter 53, that how God is a godly man of sorrow and that we can be healed through his, his stripes. You know, he took upon all the sins and pains of us. If we will just turn to him, we can overcome. And then my husband taught 
stories of two athletes, Jesse Owens, black athletes, and Wilma Randolph, you know, during the height of, you know, real oppression and racism, and yet how they overcame and they won the medals and they proudly saluted the flag. And uh, Hitler was in the stands in Berlin when Jesse Owens won his medals and Hitler couldn't take it when the national anthem, a black man proudly saluting the flag, Hitler left. And how these, uh, you know, great athletes, of course, they were had to overcome pressures and hardships, you know, being a citizen of that country, but they did not look at themselves as victims, but victors, and they opened the door, you know, for others to come after them to be able to you know, be accepted and, and to do good and, and to be proud about representing this land where we can overcome, we can overcome in our personal life, we can overcome as a nation. And we taught our children because we haven't exactly been too impressed with some of the uh, athletes in the, you know, the, the Olympics. And, and, you know, to have a, a husband and uh, to teach these stories to our children so that they are armed up and not giving excuses for athletes that want to, you know, quit in the middle of the games and, and don't really even seem too concerned that they might be representing our country. It might be a little bit more than just them and where they are in their headspace at the moment. Cause they're feeling, you know, some pressure, you know, my husband said, don't you think Jesse Owens and little Wilma, you know, felt some pressure, you know, uh, but they, they hung in there. And they, and they are a great light and example and beautiful examples of what victors look like. And that, um, you know, we focus on, you know, the great stories of, of the victories that have been achieved, not the atrocities that have occurred or, or might occur. And so, you know, as we continue to teach our children and keep them close, even if they're adults, you can still teach them. You know, I do a little daily text to my uh, kids and I send a little scripture and a little quote and bear my little testimony. The Lord will send you ideas and ways in which you can touch the hearts of your children, whether they're toddlers or they're out of your home and you're a grandmother, what you can do to teach your grandchildren when they come over. And you learn these things by gathering with other women. You learn these stories. You learn these principles of the constitution. This is why we gather together in our cottage meetings. This is why we learn, you know, the history and what our founders intended. And we learn the constitution from the viewpoint of the founders, because that's, where we were really great when we lived under these uh, ideas and principles the first hundred years. And you can see as we begin to deviate what has happened to our country. So we know how to repair it. So we know what made it great. We know how to then repair it to make it great again. And then, you know, as we learn these things, God will put to our hearts what we can do to do something, to get involved in our community or make changes within your home. Mamas, as you do these things, it will be the mothers of America. You will wake up, you know, your loved ones, your husband. You mamas will be the impetus. You've heard me say this for this nation enduring and for God intervening and healing our land. It is all throughout history. It has been the woman. It has been the mother. It has been the hand that has rocked the cradle that has changed the world. God puts ideas into a mama's mind and heart, and then she instills and teaches them into her babies, and then God waits. 
And so um, anyways, that is our lesson today. I know it's a heavy one, mamas, but just know that God is a God of hope and he wants us to be partakers of hope. And so we're just learning how it got broke so we can know how to fix it next week. We're going to talk about the attacks on the constitution. And I think it will really help cement and connect the dots about what has changed in our constitution and how these changes are impacting us. And it will help us to know how to repair and restore the constitution in seminar four in a few weeks. So anyways, okay, try and review this material in the next 48 hours. Now go out and do something fun with your kids because this is kind of heavy duty stuff, but I love you, sweet mamas until next week.